So hi, I'm Manjula Dubey, senior developer at uh, Book My Show. I am leading the PWA team at Book My Show, and I work on React, Redux, and uh, front-end technologies. Uh, so Jason has been an inspiration for me. I follow him on Twitter, and yes, that's where I thought of you know having a podcast with him. Uh, today we have uh, Jason, who is also known uh, as Develop it on Twitter, uh, and is an inspiration for all the open source people out there. Also, we have Anup, who is a developer. Uh, he's contributing to Preact CLI. So probably uh, I have recently tried out Preact library, and according to Preact JS website, it is like much faster alternative to React with the same API, and it, it is kind of packed into merely. 3KB of GZIP. So before we start with a lot of questions, uh, I want each one of you to just introduce about yourself. Let's start with Jason. Uh, hi. So yeah, I'm I'm Jason. As mentioned, develop it on Twitter. Um, I am mostly right now focused on Preact and leveraging. Um, web workers. That's kind of my current uh, preoccupation. Um, I <laughs> I'm in the middle of titles right now, so I can't say like, oh, I'm I'm such and such and whatever. Uh, I think officially on paper, I am a dev rel for Chrome. Um, and actually, as it turns out, this podcast has really good timing. My first day on the Chrome team is Monday. Oh, nice! So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you excited about it? Hey. Uh Excited, nervous. <laughs> uh, so, Anup, uh, your introduction, please. Um, sure. So, uh, this is still not yet official. Like, uh, I didn't announce it. So, I am going to start to start my role as a content developer in my show from Wednesday onwards. And over there, I am so excited to be working along with you, Manjula, and the rest of PWA team over there. Even I'm excited. Apart from that, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Apart from that, uh, I have been like what? Uh, I've been contributing to React CLI a lot, and keep bugging keep bugging most of the people over there a lot. Like that's one thing what I do best. I guess Jason knows it pretty well about me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's the perfect role. We it's that's one thing about open source projects is you never have somebody to like kind of keep on you and be like, hey, you promised you were going to do this thing. You actually going to do it? So Anup is uh, frighteningly good at uh, keeping people to their word. There, it's incredibly useful. Uh, glad that I've been using that way. Cool. So we start with few questions. Uh, so Jason, the first question for you. So I'd say, is Jason a bot for daily scheduled releases of awesome web libraries? Uh, <laughs> I get asked this a lot. And honestly, um, I, I'm probably misleading about how productive I am. 
Uh, also, I've been sort of cheating, so I've, I've been uh, waiting to start at, at my new position at Google for uh, a month or two now. So I've actually had a ton of time to contribute to open source stuff, um, which is super nice because like when, when you're kind of in between things, there's no restrictions on what and when you can publish. Um, so I've been able to just sort of throw some stuff at the wall and see if it sticks. Uh, like I, I did three or four different worker libraries, which probably have overlap on each other. Um, but, yeah. you know, open source being what it is, I can release all of them and kind of see which ones people are more interested in and, and focus on those. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do produce probably a, a decent amount of individual modules. I think part of that is actually because um, I tend to focus really specifically on small modules. Every once in a while, I'll do something um, that's a little bit more broad in scope, like micro bundle, um, and and those tend to take a little bit more time. But uh, I'm like a prototype kind of a guy. That's that's what I do. So for me, the initial like fifty to eighty percent of a project, that's where I get all my joy from. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I tend to like go from project to project, creating things, and then I, I wait a little bit to see how they progress before I, you know, put in the effort to, to finish them, you know, that last 20%. So. Okay. Uh, so I must say that, uh, I mean, you and you are a true inspiration for developers, uh, I should say. I mean, the kind of inspiration... Thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It's funny to hear because I feel like I still have so much work to do with the, the way I interact with the open source community. I think I'm decent at, you know, wrapping up modules and publishing them to NPM. But uh, even like Anoop in particular has shown me that there's there's a lot of other skills at play here, not just throwing code at the wall. And uh, I think if I had like an area where I'm trying to focus on, that's probably it's more in the community interaction uh, keeping my word when I when when I say I'm going to come up with something, scheduling releases, these things where at companies producing you know proprietary software, there's structure in place um, established by you know whatever management team was there. Um, open source kind of has to define that for itself, um, and like for really 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 small stuff, you can sort of maybe leave it up to the you know individual project maintainers. But I think after a certain point, if you want to start having a bit of cohesion where, you know, every project that starts with Preact Dash has, you know, a certain level of quality and, and this many releases, um, you really have to start thinking more generally about what that message is that all those repos are, are being tied together to present. Correct. So that's kind of where I'm, that's where I'm struggling. Um, and it's not, not to say that I'm doing poorly necessarily, but, you know, that, that's where I'm spending a lot of my time right now is trying to figure out how can I grow in, in that area. <laughs> Okay. So, like, when did you decide to create uh, another library called P with Preact? And, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was React. When did you actually decide? So, um, I, in, in my previous job, I bounced around from project to project pretty regularly. Um, one of my main projects had been building this platform that I'd worked on for almost 10 years. Um, and that platform, you know, it was a bajillion different things, kind of a crazy operating system thing. But one of the features that it had was it had a full implementation of the W3C 
DOM spec, or at least a, a reasonably full implementation of it, including web components and Shadow DOM and um, Scope CSS and all that good stuff. This was before those were you know widely available in browsers. I think they were only implemented in Chrome at that point. Um, and so my development platform of choice for at least a couple of years was, uh, you know, pre-release web components. You know, web components V0, um, the the ones that don't okay. exist anymore, which yeah. is yeah. infuriating. Because I, I like, you know, every time I talk to Rob Dodson about web components, I, I'll say something and be like, that's the V0 API. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. I, it's like the one that's ingrained in my brain. Okay. But, so I, you know, for a long time, I was a web components guy, and I, I love the idea of having a component model. I saw how everything fit together. Shadow DOM was your composition layer. Scope CSS was nice. Um, but I eventually had to shelve that project. And what I found was, uh, mostly for my spare time stuff, I found it really frustrating to go back to the web primitives without um, without these new features like Shadow DOM and custom elements. Yeah. Um, and I, I started getting really frustrated because before, when I would start a project in this system, I wouldn't have to install any libraries. I could just like start typing code because the, right. the primitives there were high level enough that I could just use them to build an application. Um, and I, I got really frustrated. I looked around, kind of surveyed what was out there. I read um, React's Getting Started Guide. Um, having never used React before, really not understanding anything about how it worked. Oh, okay. uh, rather getting started, guy. Yeah, no, I, I was completely <laughs> clueless. I, I missed like the first two years. I, I thought that I mean, most of the motivation was taken from React. No, not at all. <laughs> so, the, the first version of React was actually a code pen. Uh, it was an animation demo I wrote. Oh. I finally gave it a title. I, I looked back at my code pen the other day because I was writing a blog post. And I finally found it. I'm like, wow, this this code pen is still like. Untitled hasn't been changed since what 2005 or uh, 2015. Um, so I finally I gave it a title and, and uh, made it a real thing. But um, yeah, Preact started out as like a code pen of me trying to figure out with this model of like a function that returns a description of a DOM over and over and over again. Could I animate stuff? Could I animate DOM elements at 60 frames per second? Because I, I kind of figured that was something, you know, the React team was very focused on building applications and large-scale UIs. It wasn't maybe as focused on uh, animation level of performance. And they were already at this point, I think, internally starting to shift towards looking at those things. I had, had no idea, but um, so that's kind of how that started out. And I, I just kind of evolved that demo. Uh, eventually, it got to about 600 lines, which is uh, the point where it starts to get a little bit annoying in CodePen with the one one file. Um, so I, I chucked it into a repository and then I built um, uh, an application called esbench.com, which is still around. Okay. Um, and esbench, I I saw Google's material design stuff, uh, material design light at the time. Uh, and, I, and I had this little library that I knew would do animations at 60 FPS. I'd added really, really rudimentary support for React style components. Uh, in fact, much of what I'd added at that time uh, was incorrect, and I hadn't realized it. <laughs> like the timings were all wrong, and the names weren't quite right. There was extra lifecycle events, like component did unmount, which has no purpose whatsoever. But uh, you know, the first version had it. Okay. Um, we didn't deprecate that for a long time, too. But so I, I decided, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a stab at building ESBench, which is like a JavaScript performance benchmarking tool, right. using Material Design Lite. 
Okay. And using this crazy, at that time, unnamed library uh, that I'd written just to see, like, okay, you know, worked on CodePen. Will this scale up to building, like, a half-decent application? Um, and inevitably, you know, with any project, I ran into a, a myriad of, of crazy stuff that just didn't work. Or, you know, material design light is, is weird, and it'll, like, rip elements out of the DOM and put them in other places. And my diffing algorithm I'd written was totally not equipped to handle that at all. So I, you know, I kind of hobbled along patching together what became React MDL, the wrapper around material design light, um, and then Freeact itself underneath that. I think eventually it did get named Freeact in that project just as a joke. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and I, and I grabbed the module name on NPM because I was like, yeah, you know, if I can't think of anything else, I guess it'll have to just be Freeact. Um, and and I think that's sort of where some of the goals started to take shape. So like at that time, I was really, really, really focused on JavaScript performance for, okay. you know, number one and DOM performance number two. I've always been really, really interested in these things. Um, having worked on projects in the past where I knew I was well beyond the limitations of what a browser should be allowed to do uh, and tried to pursue things anyway. Um, so, I, you know, I, it, this was not a foreign area to me, but I was, I was really trying to kind of focus down on like, okay, if all I'm doing is working with, you know, bare metal JavaScript, like just regular old JavaScript and regular old DOM, uh, you know, what kind of limitations am I bumping up against with these things? So I used Preact and some of the earlier performance demos um, to experiment around with that and eventually got to a point where I knew that I'd built something that was probably solid enough to stand on its own. Um, and that's around the time where I started like actually, you know, looking at React's API documentation and realizing that I'd gotten all the names and everything wrong and these things. Because I hadn't really, you know, intended to build a, a React um, clone or whatever. Yeah. At first, I, it was probably much more similar to Mithril JS at that time, which was something I'd been dabbling in. Okay. Um, but I figured if I was going to release this, uh, I already had a, a stupid name I could use, um, and people really liked the React component model. So, and w once I'd read about it, like the name started to make sense. Uh, I really, really liked the simplicity both of their documentation, but also of the concepts. Like, I really felt like I could wrap my head around the you know, the outward appearance of how React worked, not the internal stuff, but the outwards of it in, you know, a couple of minutes. It right. was it was pretty quick to get started with. Um, so that was around the time when I, when I decided to just kind of run with it as as being, you know, whatever whatever this weird strata is between a, a React Lite, like a, you know, a light version of it, and some, you know, some library that takes React's ideals and tries to re-implement them using next to no code. Okay. So that was kind of. Um, I, I do have a question. So, and why is there a P in React? Like, are you obsessed with purple? Um. Ah, that's my question. Yeah. <laughs> Why purple? The name was. Um, was kind of a joke. Um, I actually just wrote a thing that scan the NPM registry for package names that end in React and only have one extra letter. Um, and this was one of the few that was available. Uh, and then I kind of started breaking it apart in my head. And I think my original 
like I, I'm terrible at naming things. Um, my other libraries have had, you know, prior to Preact had even worse names, if you can imagine. Um, but one of them I had was called Pico Dom. Um, and aside from Pico having some interesting definitions in Spanish, uh, I have always thought that was a, a decent, you know, categorization of the way I like to think about Monty, which is like start as small as possible, only add features if they are truly justifiable. Um, and so I think the P probably originally stood for Pico or Puny or, or uh, okay. <laughs> Monica, one of the one of the Polymer team, um, Monica, whose whose last name I can't pronounce correctly, uh, not Waldorf on Twitter. Um, we met up at I think it was Google I/O last year, and she came up to me. She was like, "Is the um, is the P in Preact? Does it stand for Petite?" <laughs> okay. All. <laughs> um, and I, I think I had never really realized it at the time, but I, I think I, you know, if I wanted to rewrite history, that's what I would, that's what I would make it. It's, it's petit react, okay. small react. So I think, I think that's probably the, uh, the best I can do for like an origin story of that P. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a great story of, you know, uh, like, like what you said, like where you started off with your code pen and then finally, uh, I, I would say a lot of companies are moving from React to Preactive, and we are planning. So I mean, that's that's really great. Yeah, it's weird to see something evolve from exactly uh, from like a prototype slash demo into not e like even into a library is one thing, but into a community is even more surprising. Yeah. Um, it's weird because like it turns out the the ideals and the and some of the inspiration exactly. that. Uh, you know that the Preact drew from it in its early days probably end up being more valuable than the than the code itself. It's more about like, okay, here's a community of a few thousand people who are creating high quality small modules. So I know that I can you know search this you know exactly. the npm registry or GitHub for you know this corpus of of modules and I'm going to get something that works fairly well together. Exactly. So I mean. Uh... What do you say, like, what's the future of web frameworks? Like, if you talk about in the current context of new standards, like, you know, web components or WebAssembly, what, what is Preact's strategy all about? Yeah, this is an interesting topic right now. This is, like, um, very actively discussed at Google I.O., for sure. Uh, and definitely something, you know, myself and Anoop and uh, Chris and a bunch of other people who are kind of the, at the core of Preact's shaping right now are, are talking about. Um, so like within the context of current standards, like web components and shadow DOM and stuff, I think Preact already plays, um, more nicely than even I would have expected just because it does so little, it's not, there's very little invention on top of the DOM that Preact adds. So we never really have to worry about, uh, you know, how Preact interoperates with existing standards. Cause it's, it's not really masking them in any way, you know, shadow DOM, can sometimes be a, a pain for for libraries that abstract events. Um, same deal with um, you know custom elements and attributes for for libraries that you know are, are really really good about like trying to avoid um, ambiguity between attributes and properties. Um, that can sometimes be a foot gun because when you have a custom element, the difference between an attribute and a property is left. Completely right. up to the author of the element, right. <laughs> so it's like it's, it's not something you can know in advance. So, um, part of of the reason Preact works reasonably well in that regard is we can't have 
like whitelists or um, configuration like that in the library uh, to be able to hit like you know smooth over those those rough parts in the DOM because there's just no room for them. So uh, you know all the techniques that we have in place for actually inspecting the DOM to ask it you know is this supported is, is can I use a property to set this value uh, you know please add an event here remove an event there um, they're so low level that any spec that comes out is is just still going to work with them because it's really no different than writing JavaScript um, DOM manipulation by hand, uh, the way Preact works. So in that regard, um, I think that Preact's future in the context of web standards is um, pretty straightforward. So Preact is at its core a different library. That's never going to change. Um, we have some interesting work going on in the in the space of moving that work off the main thread. Uh, and I have to tread lightly here because some of it's public, some of it's not. Okay. Um, <laughs> specifically, you, you, you had mentioned it, uh, what in your questions you sent over Waza. Man. <laughs> right. Uh, there is experimentation. And I, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say anything more than that because it's not my, my group of people who is, uh, is working on that. But um, I can talk about some of the other stuff. So. Wasm is a challenge for DOM because it involves bridging to uh, essentially another language, right? Yeah. Um, and and so there's this you know this boundary there that you have to cross, uh, um, akin to a thread boundary. Um, web workers are another case where that's true, where you have this this serialization pit that's not really avoidable. At the very least, it's going to be uh, you know a thread a thread boundary. Uh, now that we don't have shared array buffers, it's a serialization pit, um, and We've always had the ability to run Preact in a web worker. Uh, I wrote a, a library years ago called Undom that makes this fairly trivial. Um, essentially, you run Preact in the web worker against this ridiculously small kind of bare bones DOM implementation, uh, and you use Mutation Observer to collect up all the changes in that lightweight DOM representation and send them over to the main thread. Um, and I. I think it's a really interesting technique. Um, the problem that I've run into with this in the past is that when you move your entire applications, like all the business logic, all the components, the you know the DOM representation, all that off the main thread, um, it gets really difficult to use the underbelly of React and Preact that we all know and love, which is like, um, you know, this escape hatches of, of component will mount, component did mount, com, yeah. uh, and just being able to touch the DOM in those. Right. So, like, when you're not on the main thread, you can't just reach out and be like, yeah, okay, what's the dimensions of this div? I'm going to set up infinite scrolling based on that, because there's no dimensions. Like, you don't, you don't have layout in a worker. So, that's one area where I think um, this idea of offloading the, the UI off of the main thread can sometimes hit snags. Um, and I, I think that's why you've seen uh, over the past couple of months, certainly with my stuff, uh, also with some of Henrik Jortag's stuff, um, with his uh, Redux bundler work, um, people are looking at, okay, is there lower hanging fruit there? Can we move other things off the main thread, like our whole data layer, which doesn't care about the DOM anyway, so theoretically it should be really easy right. to move. Okay, and then and then leave. You know, the like the UI thread is our main thread. Uh, we don't really have an option to to separate the two on the web. 
Um, so maybe we just leave most of our UI stuff on that thread and avoid serialization hit. Um, there's other stuff happening in this space that I'm still pretty excited about. The work with Glimmer VM is, I think, really promising. Um, that also ties nicely into possible upcoming features of the DOM. Um, I can't remember the name right now. It's gave me. It was like the the, the hot topic at uh, Chrome Dev Summit. Okay. Um, it's, it's a way to essentially pass uh, a mutation record from from a worker to the main thread. Um, so you could actually do your diffing in the worker and send pointers to DOM elements across that, right. that boundary. But doing just the diffing in the worker thread might end up in a lot of serialization issues, right? Yeah, and that's that's kind of what you run into, especially what it, what it does. And I, I think I, I didn't really realize this at the time when I was working on some of my earlier demos with it. It means that all of your updates require two thread boundary traversals. Uh, you know, two post messages, one in, one out, at minimum. And there's not really a way for us to say, like, oh, this is a touch move listener. I can't afford to run this on a background thread. Like, that's crazy. Um, and this isn't a problem that's unique to the web at all. If you look at React Native, the way they handle events, um, there's lots of people who will go out of their way to write native controls um, in order to push events onto the main thread. I think actually React Native does some stuff for this now. I'm totally not the right person to ask about that because I've never used it. But, um, you know, there's there's ways to essentially delegate the functionality of a, of a handler onto that UI thread so you're not paying the, you know, the, the cost of serializing and, and uh, diffing something on a background thread. Um, like, it, this is a, an interesting analog. Sometimes you'll see components in, in React land where... Uh, they will actually circumvent React for adding their event listeners. I'm thinking um, like a material design sidebar where, you know, dragging it out from the left-hand side of the screen has to be as fast as humanly possible, right? It's a touch interaction, and you need to get those updates out to the DOM, you know, inhumanly fast. So most of the really robust implementations we have of, of that drag gesture are doing direct DOM manipulation. Even though they're encapsulated in a React component, uh, they bypass all of it. And it's just to like to to get the code path between your touch event being generated and the DOM being updated to be as tiny as possible. Um, so I think if we're really gonna if we're gonna see widespread worker adoption in 2018, 2019 for user interfaces, I think we're gonna need new tools or new abstractions on top of the web platform to be able to query the main thread for stuff uh, or, you know, lock that background thread and, and wait on DOM dimensions or even better, um, you know, features in these frameworks where you can say, I have an event handler um, and I'm registering it as a virtual DOM event handler, same as any other, but I want you to run this on the main thread. It's going to do inline DOM manipulation and I, I don't want to hear about it. Just run it on the thread. I think that's going to be uh, an important space if, if people are looking to adopt workers and even if people are looking to, to move diffing to WASM. Um, so you can just avoid that serialization uh, and boundary crossing hit entirely. Uh, so uh, I feel people always like compare the Preact CLI with you know the Create React app in, fe in terms of features. What, what, what do you think? What are your thoughts on it? <laughs> This is probably a news question. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's king of all pre-axial. 
all right so it's all like uh, to the end it's all this like both have the similar opinion where you can just go and create new projects as soon as possible and try to get started with bare minimum zero configuration as in as little as configuration which you have to like uh, add to the whole project and all that stuff so coming to the main features like react i mean create react app has its own advantages where like it is tightly coupled where it doesn't allow the user to extend the whole config which they think is pretty good because it uh, reduces the amount of work which they have to do and all the stuff so that is one of the main reasons why they have added this option called eject where you literally uh, with which you will literally get the entire control on your configuration for the whole application coming to react cli it offers um, the extension mechanism where you can extend the whole webpack config or any sort of config using react.config.js uh, that is one of the main things and with that the other advantage in react cli is the main one main thing is plugin architecture which it comes with so you can go hook up any of the uh, like plugins in react cli saying that like i want this particular plugin to work along with react cli so you just go at that particular config for the webpack or whatever the bundle you are using and then you go to it yeah it's it's funny so like on paper i think if you if you just list it out okay here's the features that preact uh, cli provides here's the features that create react yeah. app provides they're really you know they're similar it's not even overlap at this point they they accomplish the same goals um they were born a little bit differently uh preact cli was really 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 specifically you know given life as a way to build tiny pwas with preact um google was involved in in uh you know in in kind of helping us shape what that might look like uh which is incredibly useful um and i i think what that meant was some of the features that in create react app are kind of you know they don't seem super core to its goals right its, its goal being avoid boilerplate um we more treat those as like some of the core value of of what the cli provides so like the service worker integration um our implementation of the purple pattern for for code splitting and and uh you know lazy loading routes um and you know it, and probably the the single greatest difference between the two of them aside from the config thing that that uh Anoop mentioned is um preact cli tries to stay out of your way kind of you know you could just use it as a general purpose preact app bundler but it does include little bits of magic um based on whether you've used preact router um <laughs> essentially if if you if you build a regular preact app um you know something like you would have gotten if you'd used our old preact boilerplate project um what preact cli is going to do is it's it's actually going to try and um further optimize your app beyond you know just compiling your code to a to a decent representation it's going to look at your folder structures it's going to look at which components are lazy loaded um it's going to match them up with uh its roster of chunks to generate and generate uh preload headers or preload meta tags for you uh to just kind of automate away all of those things and our goal was for somebody who is new to react or preact be able to come in read some documentation about how components work write an app using 
you know, that simple virtual DOM components model. And then without realizing it, compile it using this tool that knew more about their code than they did. Um, and, 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 you know, coming out the other side, get this really, really, really optimized representation of their app that already has pre-rendering baked in and is already doing route preloading and like uh, intelligently loads polyfills and these sorts of things. Because uh, I, you know, my background, I come from uh, having to set up technology for uh, for teams within a company. It was kind of my thing. Right? You know, new team, okay, they need to stack. Let's set them up with a stack, figure out what, what gets used. And uh, part of the the experience I take away from that is it's fairly easy to like pick out a bunch of tools, stream them together, and and say, okay, this is you know your stack. But where you really start to see things break down is two years down the line when those tools are out of date or uh, you know something new has come along. Um, people can get really really bogged down trying to figure out like, okay, given the current lay of the land, how can we update our tooling to you know to reflect these changes? If there's new best practices that come out. Uh, do I suddenly have to have somebody who does know how to get into the bowels of Webpack and, and make these things work for our team? So I think Preact CLI kind of represents our attempt to mask all of that away into a dependency that you don't ever have to eject from. Uh, you know, you'll you'll always use Preact CLI to build your app. And so if the web platform gets a new feature or Preact gets an update that requires you know certain things to change. Uh, we know that Preact CLI will be able to encompass that change because it's wrapping up the entire build process end to end. You know, it handles everything from CSS to, to code splitting. Um, and I think that's probably at its core the, the main difference between these two tools is Create React App is an excellent solution for avoiding boilerplates. Uh, in that regard, it was way ahead of its time too. Um, but they like this idea of you can eject and then you have complete and utter control over your configuration. It's your code in your repository. There's lots of people who are super keen on that. Um, for for Preact CLI, we're, we are much more um, interested in going down this avenue of like, it's a excellent zero configuration tool that if your project sprawls and you're building, you know, like a 50,000 line application and you need something more than what the defaults are, um, we have an extension mechanism for you rather than having to eject and, and start to figure these things out on your own and all of a sudden take on this entire Preact CLI code base as your own code. Um, you could just kind of inject hooks into the Webpack build process and do whatever you want to it. Um, and I, you know, I don't know that we were all <laughs> uh, even necessarily sure of how this was, was going to work out long term when we started down that path. The extension mechanism was not even in the initial plan for the CLI. Um, but coming up on, on a year's worth of CLI releases, I think it's worked out extremely well. Um, okay. you know, it's, it's enabled both, uh, you know, at least in terms of my usage, it's enabled me to build a ridiculously large and, and widely varied number of applications, uh, with, without having to use a different tool. Uh, but it's also enabled the plugin architecture kind of ad hoc. We never intended to have React CLI plugins and, uh, I forget. I think it was just like a random Slack discussion. I think Sarah Vieira was involved, and, and obviously Anoop and, and some other people. Um, uh, this was a, idea. Sarah's <laughs> was the first plugin, I guess. Just kind of like uh, had this idea, like okay, you have this this configuration file. There's a function that mutates Webpack config. Can we just publish functions to npm that do that? <laughs> and then I think everyone just kind of like sat there and was like. 
yeah, I can't think of any reason why that wouldn't work. So, and um, I'm sure there's probably other questions here about uh, future for the CLI, but that's that's one of the things we've got on our list is streamlining that process. So, Jason, uh, uh, so when Preact CLI was launched, I think there was some new security vulnerability that was discovered with Preact CLI certificates. I mean, could yes. you, yeah, so could you throw some lights on it on that? Yeah, so this was uh, a total blindside for me uh, that I should have known about, but I just I, I think I was in the thick of kind of getting this thing done uh, before Google I/O and, and didn't think of it. So basically, what happened is uh, with the CLI, we wanted to ship like this end-to-end tool that did you know everything in your development process, with the exception of actually running ESLint for you. Um, and one of those things we wanted to do was ship an HTTP2 server. Um, okay. One of the big selling features of Preact CLI is that it generates headers for you to do uh, H2 push automatically. Uh, you know, it looks at your routes, figures those things out, and it generates the headers. So we wanted to ship um, simple HTTP2 server alongside the CLI so that you could say, you know, Preact serve, and literally nothing else is required to get an HTTP2 server. And the... It, it was a good goal, um, but at the time, I don't think I realized that it it wasn't possible to do that in a way that was secure. Um, HTTP2 requires uh, SSL, okay, and yeah. so that meant shipping a certificate to, to users' machines, uh, and the naive me decided that we would just throw the certificate in Git. I actually copied the solution from Webpack Dev Server. Uh, they have a dash dash HTTPS option that you can pass right. that will use a self-signed Cert. So I just copied what they had. I actually copied the cert because I figured, hey, you know, everybody's already going to have this certificate installed. We might as well just use the same one, right? Okay. Uh, it was just like an Acme local host cert. Um, what I didn't realize at the time was it was a root certificate. Um, and so, you know, in the Preact CLI instructions, we would tell people, oh, okay, you know, go and install the certificate um, for your machine. And then, you know, you'll get free HTTPS on localhost. Um, problem was what that did is you were installing a root CA that was publicly available on the internet, both the, you know, you know, <laughs> both sides of it. So uh, you, we published this thing um, and we got people to install a root CA on their machines. And then uh, Mike North, uh, who works at LinkedIn and, and has a consultancy around Ember, uh, he contacted me via email and kind of explained to me, something that I should have realized originally, but it was it was nice to hear it in somebody else's words. Uh, he explained to me that somebody else could download the certificate, generate okay. an SSL cert for google.com using the root CA, okay. um, and then send you a link to a fake google.com that points to the wrong IP address, which should never work over SSL. Right. Um, but because they've been able to sign it using a root CA that you just made valid for your entire machine, it would look exactly like a, you know, HTTPS connection to Google.com. So, and, and the the attack vector would have required somebody to compromise your DNS. So it's not like this, you know, crazy wide open the internet is broken type thing. Uh, you'd need to be in a situation where, uh, you know, where your your attacker both had access to the certificate, which is publicly available, so that's fairly easy. But also had access to whoever your DNS provider is, uh, or your machine, you know, spoofing that DNS. So. It, it wasn't like a, you know, a wide open breach, but it was definitely something we did not want to be relying on as like a fundamental okay. piece of technology that we were using. Um, so I started, started scrambling. Mike actually pointed me to a project called DevCert. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, and I really wish I could remember the name of the guy who was pushing that forward. David something. I'm going to kick myself after for uh, for not remembering that. But um, so he'd been doing a lot of work on this idea of what if rather than sharing around a root CA, we generated one on the fly mm-hmm. at installation time. So like okay. you npm install dev cert and uh, you know some module imports dev cert and it can say dev cert that create certificate and it will not only create the certificate but it will try based on your operating system to add it to your operating system's trust stores. So it, nice. it actually like, yeah, it, it does that because like, you know, that's, that's, that's a pain in the butt to begin yeah. with. Um, it will do all of those things kind of yeah. automatically and it works incredibly well. Uh, I was missing, um, the certificates that generated were missing the subject alt name. So I forked that and, uh, and added that feature. And then we pretty much immediately shipped that in Preact CLI. <laughs> Um, which solved the issue. It also, uh, Webpack at the same time was obviously, you know, they were going through this vulnerability trying to get a, a release out before Mike, you know, did the public announcement about this uh, vulnerability. Um, and they shipped something similar. I think they kind of went, went more homegrown for theirs because uh, obviously they, you know, they have a much larger team around it. But uh, we still ship with, with DevCert SAN, the, the fork of DevCert. Um, and honestly, it works surprisingly well. We've had more issues getting simple HTTP2 server to, to install on people's machines than the certificate, which I would never have thought would have been the case. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, last question, which will be a technical one, and then we go for non-technical questions. Okay, so a little bit about, you know, uh, new features that we can expect from the, you know, Preact future versions. Yes. Everybody always wants to know. <laughs> I wrote a couple of these down. Uh, <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, some of these are unannounced. <laughs> Anoop is unmuting himself to try and make sure that I don't. Yeah, I'm not going to interview you. <laughs> no. uh, he'll just make like a lot of noise so you won't be able to hear what I said. So. Yeah, so I have uh, I have a bad habit of uh, when I'm working on something experimental that I'm not confident with, I kind of go dark. Okay. Um, yeah, it's happened. <laughs> or it happened with the Preact Eight release. Uh, it happened with the Preact Five release. That's um, not a bad I, habit. It's, it's, it, it gets work done because I get to kind of silo myself off in a corner and build things, but. Uh, you know, I have, we have this great risk of people feeling ostracized by that. Cause if I, you know, if I finish something and I, and I come up with a, with a new feature and it's good, I haven't given anybody time to get involved in that. Um, that being said, I think there is some value in being able to shape experimental things without just complete wholesale, uh, you know, input from, from everybody who, who wants to be involved. Cause sometimes I'll have ideas and I want to chase them down and they turn out to be awful, you know, and I would have been embarrassed to put that out in public or, you know, or it would have been misleading, you know, for somebody to, to Google Preact, find the project and then see all these issues like, Oh, you know, what the heck is this like weird <laughs> stuff about, uh, you know, WebAssembly or whatever it is, uh, you know, it might be misleading. So what we did this time is uh, I started prototyping on something I came up with, uh, a new approach uh, to Preact itself. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to mince, mince words here intentionally, so not give away what we've done. But uh, <laughs> it's it's sort of a new take on things. Um, but we gave it a different name, 
and it has been developed and kind of spied on by uh, a new steering committee that we put together that is essentially just a roundup of all people who have been involved in Preact and Preact CLI who have had, you know, already have a large amount of influence over the project. We just kind of gathered them up and gave them a Slack channel and a and a place to discuss these things, set out some core tenets for the project going forward. Um, I have been very slowly working on a blog post that's supposed to explain all these things, but it's also my first time using Medium, so I'm like, you know, experimenting around with the features of the editor and stuff like I shouldn't be. Uh, that's nice. <laughs> but the idea is uh, we're, we're probably going to be flipping some things on their head um, for an upcoming release of, of Preact. Um, this is very intentional. It's done to solve some of the problems everybody's aware of right now. Um, Preact doesn't support uh, fragments, the React 16.2 feature fragments. Uh, and yeah. Does, yeah, so like like array returns from render and fragments are, are both uh, things we've had on our to-do list for a while. I've always wanted to do uh, array returns from render. Even I, I don't actually have much of a use case for them myself Okay. because uh, I'm kind of a dom, a dom guy. I don't really... I don't really think you in terms of this secondary abstraction, but uh, there's a lot of cases that I've heard from people where that might be useful, certainly for plugin systems. Um, but trying to get those things done in Preact's current diffing algorithm is probably not impossible, but hard enough that nobody's really taking a, a stab at it. We had a, <laughs> a Kai Honenberger take, took a stab at like kind of patching it in uh, using uh, DOM fragments, which was brilliant, but the the amount of code and, and bookkeeping required just to make something like that work in the current diffing algorithm is the kind of thing where you'd stare at it and be like, "There is an easier way to do this. There's got to be. We're missing something here." Okay. Um, so throughout December and a good chunk of January, uh, I kind of took that time to investigate what it would take to strip things back and. Uh, you know, rethink things in a way that would let us approach some of these problems. Uh, another big one is support for iterables as children. So not necessarily an array of children, but like, uh, you know, just like a JavaScript iterable, like a generator. Oh, got it. Go that's that's and, a good one. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. And and so like the way current libraries work, they tend to <clears throat> they tend to take a generator and convert it into an array. Right. Uh, which works fine. Um, I figured if we're already taking the opportunity to uh, to rethink some of these things, why not take it a step further and look at the option of being able to use async generators? Uh, so you could have a function that returns children that progressively mutate themselves over time. Okay. Sorry, I'm losing my voice here. And the uh, and the DOM just updates to reflect that. The diff algorithm will just take longer um, based on those you know the resolution of that generator function. Um, so that's, that's some of the stuff we're experimenting with now. Uh, it is getting a little more concrete, which is really exciting. Um, but I, you know, as ever, I'm trying to kind of temper my expectations for this. When you, when you take a project that has been around for as long as Preact were, I think over two and a half years now, um, <clears throat> it can be very difficult to strip back some of the, you know, some of the oldest code, some of the entrenched stuff and, and rethink it without misstepping or, you know, um, failing to take into account a use case that is built up over time. Um, so I'm cognizant of the fact that um, we'll probably have hurdles to jump there yet. 
Um, but aside from those things as we encounter them, uh, it's really, really, really promising at this point. Without mentioning specifics, uh, I don't think there's any stats that you could measure a library by that this won't improve us on. Got it. Uh, which is really exciting. <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of my big... Uh, <laughs> I'm probably cringing right now. Uh, that's kind of my big... Uh, that's right that's now. great, it's, actually. <laughs> I would. It's so, semi-secretive. Yeah, so I, I would like to tell you, like, I started contributing to Preact CLI a few days back. Uh, uh, and yes, I did send a PR, but you were too fast. Like, uh, the, the, I don't. Uh, this was like fix the error when CS dot get module is not a function. So yeah, uh, I think uh, the moment I sent a PR, I. I just saw that, oh, shit, the, this is already resolved. I mean, <laughs> I was like, what the, what the fuck? I mean, I need to be So you fun. actually, your timing on that was quite funny. I've been bad uh, because Anoop is so good about issue triage on the Preact CLI project. I, uh, I, there's a couple of weeks, even a couple of months there where, you know, I, I kind of, my focus was elsewhere. I was uh, working on other modules and, uh, he was kind of running solo on stuff, but, uh, you know, December kind of turned around and I, I got through some stuff. January, I was kind of wide open and had a bunch of time. So I like went through the bug tracker or whatever. And that was right at the time where <laughs> you submitted your PR. So I, I think I closed like 60 pull requests or 60 issues that day. Oh, um, okay. I had happened to get around to, to that C dot modules thing. It's funny how many times they've changed that specific API. Oh yeah. Strange. Uh, cool. So, some time for non-technical questions. Uh, yes. Uh, so, first one would be like, how do you decide what what how to spend your time with like in context of tech or maybe it's an OSS? Do you, do you follow something or how how does it work? Uh, I wish I could say I was that structured. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> My, my wife wishes I could say I was that structured. I'm like the least scheduled person ever. Um, working on it, but uh, <laughs> is, that, me. is that a tough you question? Just me, Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I'm. I'm. I try to govern myself a little bit. Um, it's it's odd. So, the way that I spend my time on open source stuff tends to be derived from the way I spend my time on whatever my other primary focus is. So if I'm working on something, you know, at my previous job, uh, and, and it's got my head, you know, the gears in my head turning about you know, a service worker or push or, or something like that, uh, mm -hmm. or some, some different way of doing diffing or charting or whatever, that tends to lend itself to, uh, you know, what my OSS time will be spent on. Certainly if I'm in like experimentation stage with stuff. Um, similarly, you know, I've, I've been working a lot on a bunch of modules recently. And one of the effects of that is I've now released a couple of modules that help out people who are working on a lot of modules, uh, which sounds like a stupid circular thing because now I'm doing maintenance on the modules that I built to help with maintenance on modules. Um, but the idea is, you know, it's, it's kind of that itch scratching. It's like, uh, 
I'm, I'm building a thing and I get interrupted by this annoying problem. Like, oh man, it's really <laughs> annoying setting up karma in every one of these projects with Webpack and, uh, you know, the Babel setup and right. all these, you know, I've got like 35 dependencies just to get a test runner set up for the, for the cases where I need a DOM test runner and can't use Jest. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to create a module that wraps all these things up. And so, you know, I stop working on whatever my actual focus was and I create a new repo and I try and shove all the stuff from there into a new repo and it inevitably ends up taking all day. Um, but then at the end of it, I know that the next time I go to create a project that needs a test harness that can run DOM tests, I can just NPM install that module I wrote. Um, now I got the so answer. Kind of, so uh, yeah. <laughs> now that's the answer. It's a workflow thing. Yeah. It's a workflow thing. And I think I think Sindre is is similar in that regard. He he's the kind of guy who bumps up against a problem and rather than thinking, oh, I'll create a folder on my on my you know hard drive to to contain the solution to this problem, create an NPM module and publish it. You know, you are your own customer. Yeah. And I, I I worry about the, the message that I can sometimes send. Like it looks like I'm just like publishing stuff out in the way, but these are things that I, I legitimately have use cases for and run into with me. So um I hope that other people find them as useful as, as they are to me. That's always my goal. Okay. So now that's a hypothetical question. If all our jobs get automated, what alternative occupation uh, occupation would you have taken up? Uh, I'm a musician, so I would be not even in tech. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. I, I, oh, no, 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 no. This is totally, I, I think this is the wrong question for Jason. <laughs> No, no, that is why, that is what I said. It's a hypothetical question. No, no, no. As in, uh, what I'm saying is, this is not even a good question for Jason because <laughs> he himself is a robot in the first place. That's right. Yeah. No, no, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I truly, would, yeah. what, what would you would, be? What what would you have taken up? Um, I'm terrible at math. So, I would probably like if I was still going to try and do something in the in the world of programming. I guess okay. um, I would probably be focused on you know building whatever automation does our jobs for us. Like uh, I had a tweet the other day where I was talking about it seems like we're kind of coming up on this new wave of design tools that spit out code, so we don't actually have to write code to build user interfaces. Uh, and I've actually built tools like that in the past. I would be thrilled to be involved in building another one again. And I can see myself doing that. There's an irony there, though, because like after a certain point, if you're building a graphic design tool that outputs code, you could start using that tool to build itself. Uh, and then you'd be out at your job, too. But, you know, there's always going to need need to be somebody who maintains the tool that does the code, Jen. <laughs> right. uh, so I'd, I'd probably end up working in that space, I guess. You know, rather than an architect, or rather than a, a programmer, I'd be playing more of an architecture role, which is probably more in line with my, uh, you know, older jobs I've worked on. Okay. Um, but that, yeah, that or or just a starving artist, you know, okay. playing drums. Cool. So, what what is the best piece of advice someone has given you till date? Oof. <laughs> That's a tough one. That's a tough one. <laughs> uh, it's a good question, though. So, hmm. I'm trying to think of specifics. I've had a lot of good managers in the past. 
Um, so I've had a lot of good advice. That's why it makes it hard for me to just kind of pick one thing. Um, you can take your time. It's necessarily like a single piece of advice, but I like my, my first legit front end web dev job. It was like a shop. There was like three of us. I was, I was the front end dev for the team. Um, my manager, who was also the you know the guy who wrote some of our PHP code, but was also the uh, you know um, the, the the guy who ran the place. Um, he made sure to drill into us that it like programming isn't just a it's not just like a knowledge pursuit. I'm phrasing this really poorly, but. Um, he, he tried to drive home, like, there's there are certain classes of problems that are worth spending your time on, and there's certain classes of problems that just aren't. It's sort of a cost-benefit analysis for every character and every line of code you write. Um, and you can apply this to so many different decisions. Like, we were using PHP at the time, and there was always this discussion of, like, oh, should we move to a better language? We're using PHP 5.4, so, you know, it barely had classes, I guess. Um but like we, there was always this discussion of like, should we rewrite this in, in uh, Scala or whatever, you know, the hip thing was at the time. And using this, this really simple rule that he had, which was to, to kind of judge everything based on the cost and the, and the benefit, um, it became really easy to justify not moving to another language just to get, you know, a little bit of, of performance improvement or whatever, because the cost of the rewrite, you know, in terms of dollars and man hours really? uh, or person hours, um, it would have wildly exceeded the cost of just getting another virtual private server and slapping a load balancer in front of it. Um, and I, I really think that above, you know, almost everything else I've been told in my career, that has stuck with me, which is ironic because I ended up you know, I, I have a, a keen interest in performance and I do spend my time doing often silly performance optimizations. But I think that that um, cost benefit kind of trade off always sits in the back of my head, reminding me that, like, after a certain point, you should stop. You know, when you're when you're down into single digit percentage changes in performance, uh the likelihood that you're wasting your time trying to push further goes through the roof. Um, and it's, it also applies to something more interesting that has affected me later in my career too, which is um, sometimes just getting something to like a bare minimum is enough to fulfill a need and solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And then you'll find that there's some totally separate problem that comes up that is worth way more than you know, it's, it's worth your time way more than getting that thing to a hundred percent. It's kind of, it's kind of the basis of, of, uh, agile software development. Um, which makes sense because at the time we were, we we're all very focused on that and that was kind of our, our bugbear. Um, but it, it's really nice to just have that kind of simple reminder in the back of my mind where I can be like, yeah, like 80% done for this project is going to accomplish uh, you know, 95% of my goals. And then I can just go and do something else. You know, I, I can, I, there's, there's no reason for me to update this project to the latest version of Preact because it works fine. Correct. I totally um, agree with this. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I guess that's like, that's the, the piece of advice that's probably stuck with me the most. Cool. So I, you think, uh, you soon going to join Google. What are you going yeah. to do there? Um, so start Monday, 
according to Addy, I will be working on web loading and performance. Okay. Um, which makes sense because that's kind of what I do. Um, you notice over the past couple of weeks and months, I've been focusing a lot on web workers and performance analysis and stuff. Um, that's not entirely a coincidence. Uh, it's obviously a, an area I'm very interested in in the first place, but um, it's it's intentional. So I'm going to be continuing with that. Um, hopefully investigating some of the things that I touched on before with um, those serialization boundaries and how to work around them, running DOM and worker, et cetera. Are you excited? Um, I think there's... Oh, yeah. Super <laughs> excited. Also, just super nervous, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So who is your programming hero? I mean, by hero, I mean, who's your inspiration? Doug Crawford. Oh, okay. Nice one. Yeah, and so um, he... His book, uh, JavaScript, The Good Parts, was the, yeah, was that's the book amazing. that I read. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah. I could really credit that with uh, me turning programming from a hobby into a career, um, which, you know, large swaths of that transition happened by accident. But around that time, I just found myself being more and more frustrated with my code, thinking like, I, why are the things that I'm writing not better? You know, why, why don't I have names for things? And why isn't it doesn't has to have a structure that I could understand two years down the line? Um, and, and his book was, was instrumental in helping me develop, you know, my own mindset around how to do these things. So definitely, definitely Doug, I got to meet him at a conference in San Francisco a couple of years ago and I bugged him about ad safe, which was good. I don't think he was expecting to have questions about that project because, okay. you know, it's, it's kind of specific. So brought a smile to his face. <laughs> okay. That's a nice one. Okay. So what is the advice for folks? Who want to be involved in open source? Like I, I really want to get involved a lot into open source. I know Anoop has a good answer for this, but we'll check his audio. You there? Yep, I'm here. All right, give it a go. <laughs> we'll on. let you know if you're breaking up. <laughs> so, uh, if you ask me, like I would suggest starting with some small projects and you get to know. Uh, I said, no, it's not about React or any other thing. In general, I'm talking about like if you're if you're a person who is going to get started with OSS contributions and all this, I personally would start working on with smaller libraries so that you the main one main thing in OSS is like understanding the other person's code. Correct. If you're able to achieve that part, like there's no stopping you. Like as in you literally get involved a lot and that I guess that's exactly what happened with me and React Daily, I guess. And yeah, of course the other part which people kind of like worry about a lot in OSS is asking questions. They just worry about saying that like oh my god like if I ask about this particular stupid question like what does like and coming to that I am the worst possible guy because I keep on asking like stupid questions come to my mind and just keep on bugging Jason from the React Slack channel a lot. Yep, that's my advice. Jason, you would like to say something on it? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably super out of touch with this, but, uh, you know, I, I would encourage anybody who is just getting started with stuff, don't just look at the at the repo and, and you know, try and submit a PR. 
that's that's good. That's good experience, and I, I think it's it's worthwhile. But if you if you can find a project where you are able to have real time communications with the maintainers, um, you are going to get way more of a sense of community way earlier on if you can set that up. So if you find a project as a Slack channel, or you find a project where the maintainers you know can be accessed, whoever's working on it can be accessed via Slack or or Twitter DMs or, or Discord or whatever else. Um, you're going to be able to kind of pepper them with questions and kind of figure out where, what's your fit within this project or wh- where, what do they need help on, you know, cause maybe it's not well published. Um, and I think probably, I mean, I don't know whether, um, Anoop could probably tell me whether I'm right or wrong on this, but, um, for, for a project that isn't brand new, uh, that has sort of a life of its own already, right. um, a lot of times what the maintainers are looking for is someone to talk to about stuff. Got it. And, you know, there's always work that comes out of that inevitably, but like, right. the, you know, sometimes it can be very siloed working on open source, especially if it's a project that largely communicates through issues and pull requests. Um, just kind of getting in there and being like, Hey, why don't we have a face to face? Sometimes they're, so you know, is, people is, don't realize that they could do that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so what happens is like, uh, I, I work a lot in, in, in my own company where I'm working. I, I like spend uh, more than 13 hours. But that is where people, you know, talk about stuff and people implement stuff. But I feel Oasis, uh, when it comes to Oasis, uh, you're just left alone. Like you said, if we have an active Slack channel and stuff like that, and you are talking to people real time, I mean, maybe having a hangout call or something like that. I mean, it brings a motivation. And I, I'll be yeah. like, come on, solve this and, you know, solve, have a look at this issue. Yeah, it's the same kind of a thing. And, and honestly, this is why we ended up setting up a steering committee. Um, like you can let decisions make themselves and, and kind of rattle out in issues, but you're never going to be able to do it as fast as just sitting down with a group of people and coming to some initial conclusions, even coming to a conclusion that is we need to get a vote done on this or we need to go and ask people about their opinions on this. Um it's it's a lot it's a lot faster to gain consensus that way. It's kind of like if you were working for a for a globally distributed company, uh, but nobody was ever allowed to have any meetings. <laughs> it would be really hard to you know to like sit everybody down and be like, okay, so like, what's our plan for twenty eighteen? Uh, you know, if, if that all had to happen, the issues of pull requests would be really difficult. So, like, that's you had asked like, what's the future of Preact look like? And honestly, a lot of the stuff that we're looking at for our future right now is is more around the idea of like bringing together all these Preact related projects and, and kind of getting a sense of where does the community want to go next? Because uh, we don't want to, we don't want to predict things and, and be wrong. I mean, we don't want to predict things in general, but we don't want to predict them and be wrong and steer people astray. We want to be kind of well aligned with people who are using Preact. We want to be well aligned with the browser vendors who, you know, who are relying on us to make sure that people who are writing code on top of Preact are writing code that works well in a browser. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we can see an influx of people who are interested, not even necessarily just in uh, code contributions, but in just, uh, you know, helping us shape that future. I would love to get more contributors. I'm going to start bugging you now. After, oh. after this. Yeah, but you're a coder, though. Like, you, you're the you know, <laughs> same open eye. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I would be extremely happy to have an influx of people who could help us um, retrofit the Preact website. I'd love to get somebody on board who has a keen interest in information architecture. 
I used to be really into it, but I feel like my ideas about it now are a little bit outdated. Um, Definitely, so, I would love to. Yeah, like we're we're looking at doing a, a site redesign just because the Preact sites, you know, uh, information layout is crazy. Like, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, and we want to do a, a redesign. We have uh, Zuhir on our steering committee, who is like a crazy good designer. Um, but that's that's super one of those cases where like you need to have everybody kind of sitting in the same chat, being like, okay, uh, let's talk mockups. What are we <laughs> what are we going to use for this? How are we going to communicate? Like, it's kind of like running a small company. Correct. So cool. So, uh, so I mean, uh, since I've already asked you this, like. Every week we have different libraries that you work on and that's coming out. So are there any resources that you follow to keep yourself up to date? I mean, yeah, I definitely follow Twitter. I, I have periods where I don't and I just only look at my notifications. Um, tends to be the periods where I'm heads down working on something private. Um, but, you know, by and large, I use Twitter as my, my sort of stream of information. I try to monitor um, when it's not out of control my GitHub you know, stars feed. Everybody always complains about. Oh, sorry, my headset just died. Everybody always complains about stars, but I do find um, the stream of information of what other people have stars can be quite useful. Okay, cool. So, last question: Advice for front-end folks early in their career. That's a tough one. Uh, early in their career, find a company or a group of open source uh, projects that you <laughs> that you don't think you can keep up with uh, and join that one <laughs> because everybody always underestimates themselves <laughs> um, but furthermore like people who are already established in, in their careers especially in our industry um, it can be really, really, really enjoyable to have somebody to uh, try to work to impart knowledge to, and not just from like a, a selfish perspective, but also because a lot of us later in our careers are trying to um, learn how to teach. We're trying to get better at teaching because we realize, you know, you know, we're we're in the latter half of this. Like we have okay. to start disseminating knowledge out, or like making sure that you know stuff we've learned doesn't go to the gray with us. So. Uh, I know I'm talking like I'm 50 and I'm not, but um, we, I, I would suggest, yeah, finding a team where there's a good mix of people and skill levels um, where you're where you're going to feel challenged, because I think those challenges are going to be the things that you kind of take home with you and noodle on. And that, at least for me, that's the best way to learn It's just to kind of sit with something challenging and let it eat your brain. <laughs> Correct. Uh, cool. I think that's it. Thank you so much, Jason, for your time. And Anup, Thank you. you too. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. It was good. <laughs> <laughs>